Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks here at Rio, then you know that we've been kind of getting ready for this big day of Easter by studying through what's known as the Servant Songs of God in the book of Isaiah. And I just want to let you know that I know that a lot of you are just kind of joining us today and uh, that that probably doesn't sound all that compelling to you. I know that. I sincerely doubt that those of you who have missed the previous weeks, just having heard what I said, are sitting in your seat riddled with regret over having missed them and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, the servant songs of God in the book of Isaiah, honey, can we get a recording? And um, because it just sounds so compelling and life-changing, doesn't it? And yet, as every married person knows, the ways things sound are not always the way things are. It's compelling. It's life-changing if you'll let it be. And let me tell you why. We're studying the songs of God. Now, hang on. What is a song, if not a window into the heart, into the soul, into the mind of the one who has written it, who in this case, once again, is God himself? In other words, God has come to us, and through these songs in the book of Isaiah, he is saying, hey, listen, I want to give you the ability to peer into at least some aspect of my heart. I want to give you the ability to look into at least some aspect of my mind. I want you to gaze, hopefully in wonder, because that's the appropriate way to do it, into at least some aspect of my soul. And I'm going to tell you, frankly, it is very difficult to do that and to remain unchanged. It is hard to truly peer into the heart of God, look into the mind of God, gaze, again I hope, with wonder into the soul of God, and then to walk away as though you've seen nothing. It takes effort to do that. Don't make that effort. You're here anyway. Just take it in. So we've been studying the Servant Songs of God. It's been a great ride, I think, for us together as a church. And it's been a great ride because what they give to us is God himself. It's his heart. It's his mind. It's his soul. And we're going to gain him again today as we go to the last, the final Servant Song of God, the Easter Song of God. Hear that because it was written 750 years before Easter. Take that in. Remember that today. What God through Isaiah is doing in this particular song is he is looking ahead to the day when Jesus Christ will enter into the world and he is particularly looking to his sufferings, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, and then even beyond that to the way the story ends. And the story ends with Christ high and lifted up and exalted. And in the process of singing this song to us, God answers some very fundamentally important questions, like, number one, why did he send Jesus Christ into the world? It's a biggie. Number two, who did he send Jesus Christ into the world for? And then in the process of explaining this, he also tells us why it is that so many people in the first century who witnessed themselves the life and ministry of Jesus did not get it, and why so many of us still don't. It's a significant song. Look for the heart of God. Listen for his mind and consider his soul. We find the song in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, and it starts with a word that's really familiar to you if you come all the time because I talk about it a lot. If you're not, well, then I'm going to explain it. It's the word behold. He starts out with this statement. He says, behold, my servant. That's a significant word. Why? It is a word of sight. He is calling you to visualize with the eyes of your heart, with the imagination that he's given you. He's saying, look, I know it's been on a shelf for a while. I know you haven't used it a lot since you were a kid. Bring it back out. I gave it to you for a reason. Dust it off really good. Give it a little nudge. Wake it up and use it 
in this song. He wants to show you someone. Behold my servant. By the way, that's not a suggestion. Don't take that the wrong way, but I find that the sovereign Lord of the universe doesn't come to us with suggestions. He doesn't say, listen, I think it'd be kind of cool. I don't know. I mean, since you're here anyway, if you'd behold my servant. Hey, you know what? I'd really appreciated it. Look for the heart of God because then you can trust his commands. He's coming to us with something precious, with someone precious. And he's saying, okay, now I'm going to command you for your good. Behold, my servant, to which he then adds, shall act wisely. So he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. All right, well, when is he going to act wisely? Where is he going to act wisely? How is he going to act wisely? Well, during his life and ministry and mission in this earth. That's when and where, how, we'll see in a minute. But I will warn you in advance, as he tells us in this song, he will act wisely during his life and ministry and mission in this earth, particularly his sufferings, death, and so forth, but it's not going to look like wisdom to too many people. That's one of the reasons why they missed it. It's one of the reasons why we missed it. Hey, guess what? The story, from our perspective, is going to look like it ends in death and defeat. But it doesn't end in death and defeat. How does it end? He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely during his life, ministry, and mission on this earth, even though you may quibble with that. And here's how it ends. He's telling us in advance, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But what will his life and ministry look like? Because Isaiah is going to share with us in this song that how it looks causes a whole lot of us to kind of go, I don't know. Really? That's the high king of heaven? That's the savior of the world? He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely during this life, ministry, and mission on this earth. And in the end, at the final end of all things, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's how his story ends. But here's what his life, ministry, and mission on this earth looks like. And the Lord sings it to us. He says, as many were astonished. So we know right off it's going to be an astonishing ministry. But why is it astonishing? Little clue. Not because of how high he goes in the end, guys, but because of how low he goes here. That's what's astonishing. He says, as many were astonished at you, Jesus, and then he begins to describe, he says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. He is saying, the sufferings that my servant shall endure in this life will take him to the point where if you knew him before he suffered, and then you saw him after he suffered, you wouldn't realize that it's the same person. It's ugly. It's grotesque. He says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's saying he will be reduced to a state in which he no longer looks like he belongs to humanity. And then he says, and this is the most astonishing piece of all, so, meaning through that suffering and in that state, through his lowliness, through his humiliation shall he sprinkle many nations. He's saying that shed blood will be the means by which he covers over the sins of groups of people from every tribe, nation, tongue in the planet. And it's astonishing so much so that he then goes on and he says the kings of those nations, 
who themselves never witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus and who themselves never heard the message you're hearing today shall, in the end of all things, see him high, lifted up and exalted. And they'll go, wait a minute, are you serious? The high lifted up and exalted king is the same as this guy? He says, kings from these various nations shall shut their mouths because of him. They will be rendered speechless for that which has not been told them during their lifetimes. They now at the end of all things see, and that which they have not heard, they understand, okay? And they're stunned, and they're speechless, and that's what's going to happen with them. But what about me? What about you? What about those of us who have heard his message? What about all the people who saw the life and ministry of Jesus, heard him preach, watched him heal, watched him die? What Isaiah is going to say is that many of us have the same reaction. It's kind of like we look at him and go, eh, I don't know. Really? Follow along. He cries out in despair and he says, who has believed what he has heard from us? He's a preacher. He's an evangelist. He's out there sharing the message is the idea. And now he's lamenting. He's saying, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom the arm of the Lord, this Jesus who suffers and then is exalted and through his suffering saves people, has been revealed. He's saying, look, almost no one is buying this lowly Christ as the high king of heaven. And almost no one is availing themselves of the sprinkling, to use the poetic words, of his blood. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this Jesus, and now he goes on to describe him, grew up before him like a young plant. Look, that doesn't mean much to us. Let me explain what that means. He's talking about a shoot that grows up out of an exposed root of an established fruit tree. It's a rival. It's a negative. It's something that the gardener, if he sees it, clips off and throws away. He is someone who is not viewed as positive but negative. He's not viewed as desirable but undesirable. He's someone who is to be cut off and thrown away. That's how he appears. He grew up before God like a young plant, and then he says, and like a root out of dry ground, like a puny little plant struggling for life in unwatered soil with no real expectation of survival. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He came, as we said last week, as a peasant slave of the Roman Empire, as a Galilean Jew, which many was frowned upon even by his Jewish people, and as a carpenter. Nothing wrong with being a carpenter, but what it speaks to is that he appeared ordinary. Just a regular dude. Or so it seemed. There was nothing about his life, there was nothing about his position, there was nothing about his appearance that screamed, High King of Heaven and Savior of the world. In fact, it it seemed to scream just the opposite, according to our wisdom. But that's not the wisdom on display. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If you had walked down the streets of Nazareth in the days of Christ and had seen him pass you by, you wouldn't have gone, oh, wow, who is that guy? He's striking. He's different. He's No, he looks just like everyone else. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then listen to this, as one from whom men hide their faces. We cannot bear to look at him because it gets so ugly for him. 
I don't know how many of you guys have seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I saw it when it came out in the theaters. I don't know how many years ago it is now. And then someone, I think it was my mother-in-law. I probably shouldn't say that out loud because now I'm in trouble, though she's out of town. So I think she gave us the movie, okay? We have not watched it until now. We got it. We literally unwrapped the cellophane, you know, plastic around it and opened it up this Friday night. And we put it in and we put our eight-year-old to sleep. We had our 11-year-old and one of her friends there. My 16-year-old was with us. One of her friends was with us and Beth and I and all of those kids watched it together. And I will tell you, it's like two hours and 32 minutes long, I think. I watched probably close to half of it between the cracks of my fingers. I looked around during the scourging scene. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what scene I'm talking about. In my opinion, it was the most traumatic part of the whole depiction. And I realized I'm not the only one doing this. My 11-year-old and her friend had flipped over onto their stomachs. They were laying on the ground. They had their faces in the pillow. And my daughter is like almost in a panic saying, Dad, is it almost over, Dad? Is it almost, can I look again, Dad? Is it done yet, Dad? Are they finished with this yet, Dad? Is it almost over, Dad? And I looked down the row of the couch and everyone's weeping like this. That's him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. And so there's the sense in which Isaiah stands before all of humanity and says, okay, I'm going to take a raise of hands, all of humanity. How many of you guys, by this Jesus, as the high king of heaven and the savior of the world? And there are some hands that go up, but not a lot, relatively speaking. And why is that? Well, just look at him if you can bear to do it. See, we look at him and we think, are you telling me that that's the high king of heaven? You know, I mean, that's the savior of the world. And the answer to that is, yeah, I'm telling you that, but don't listen to me for a minute. God is telling you that, and he's telling you that 750 years before Jesus is even born into the world. There's an irony to all of this. There are a few ironies, really. And the first irony that I see in all of this is that the very things that he he was rejected for in his day and that we reject him for still today are the very things that God said to look for 750 years before he appeared. You're like, ah, he's ordinary. God's like, he's going to be ordinary. There's an ugliness and there's a grotesque. He's going to be ugly and grotesque in his sufferings. It looks like it ends in defeat. I mean, I I can't even look at this. This is painful. How much time is left in this movie? And that's just a depiction. God's like, well, those are the marks that authenticate him. That's part of the irony. I think the other part of the irony is that the very thing that we reject Jesus for and that they rejected Jesus for really don't belong to him. They belong to me. They belong to you. You see, what's ironic, I think, about the gospel is that the reason that the high king of heaven had to enter into humanity as God and as man, a man to suffer for men, 
an infinite man that he might suffer infinitely for all of our infinite sins. And the reason that he had to sink so low was because he had to go that low to get down on my level and to get down on yours. See, we reject him for his ordinariness. Well, Jesus isn't ordinary. He became ordinary. And he became ordinary for me and you. He took upon himself our humanity, our ordinariness, regular guy, if you will, that he might make us more like him, which is anything but ordinary. Jesus came and he appeared powerless. Well, he's anything but powerless, but he assumed my powerlessness and yours that we might share forever in his power. Jesus is anything but ugly and grotesque, and yet he assumed all that is ugly and grotesque in me and in you that he might in turn through his blood make us beautiful. Jesus deserves anything but suffering and death, and yet he took upon himself our suffering and death that the penalty for our sin might be fully paid, justice met in his person and forgiveness dealt out freely through him. And Isaiah doesn't stutter about that. He says it plainly. 750 years before he comes, listen to the language. Verse 4, follow the pronouns. He says, surely he has borne whose griefs, not his, ours, and carried. There's a burden, you see, that he takes off of us and puts onto himself our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted we wrongly, assumed that he died and suffered all of these things because of his own issues. He has no issues. It's our issues. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And then he describes us. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying about us? Because it isn't complimentary. He's saying, take a good look at the lowly Christ and understand that the portrait of Jesus is in reality a depiction of who I am and of who you are and of what all of us deserve. Now, that's astonishing for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is if we're all really honest. I mean, we just don't see ourselves that way. That doesn't make any sense to us. He shall act wisely, but it doesn't look like wisdom. It ends in victory, but it doesn't look like it does. And this deal here? I don't know, man. I mean, you want to argue with that. There's something in me that wants to argue with that, too. We want to defend ourselves and go, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Tom, I'm actually a good person. I just occasionally do bad things. Okay, let's just think through that for a minute. If you are by nature a good person, if I am by nature a good person, if everyone around us is by nature a good person, we come into the world good, we just occasionally do bad things. Why do we do bad things? And why is it harder for every single one of us to do good than bad? Why does it seem like when we do bad it's really a bit more natural. Isn't it? I mean, I don't know how many of you have been to the water parks with the lazy river that goes around it. I love the lazy river, mostly because I just get to sit for a minute, like in a tube, and float, because I'm chasing my kids all day long all around this huge park, you know, and it's like, can we just get in the river for 
the rest of the day, you know, so we don't get to go for long, but you know, it's got like this strong current and you just sit and you're carried along by the current and hopefully you get to make a few laps, you know, and everybody gets separated and you're trying to stand up in the current and you're fine. Listen, if your nature is good, goodness should be like getting in the tube and floating down the lazy river, but it's not, is it? Why is it more difficult at times to tell the truth than it is to lie? Why do we even have this phrase, lie of convenience? Why does that exist? Why is it more difficult to do things ethically than unethically? Why is it more difficult to be patient than it is to be impatient? Try that one on, because I'm pretty sure impatience comes naturally. That is me in the lazy river. Patience is me trying to fight my way up the lazy river. It's me trying to figure out a way to swim against the current. Why is it harder for us to be selfless than it is to be selfish? To be humble than it is to be proud? To be sexually pure than it is to, you know, sleep with everyone? That's who we are by nature. Why is it harder to stay in a difficult marriage when that's the right thing to do when you can just leave? That's easier. And if you still don't believe me, here's my closing argument. You ready? One word. Children. That's it. You cannot be a parent and argue with me right now. You just, you can't. You're done right there. It's game over. Have kids. Because then you will learn that you do not have to teach them how to lie. You do not have to teach them how to be disrespectful. You do not have to give them lessons in selfishness. You will never be heard at the dinner table to say, okay, kids, as soon as dinner is over... Mom and I are going to teach you, this is going to be really a stretch for you guys, how to throw a temper tantrum. (laughs) And we want to do it at the mall because that's the most humiliating place outside of church that we can do it. We're not naturally good, but we think we're naturally good. And here's the reason, because we compare ourselves with ourselves. It's like comparing two rotten tomatoes, you know? It's like, well, this one's a little less rotten than this one, so it must be good. Really? Eat it. You go ahead and eat it. I'm going to look for a perfect substitute, tomato. We compare ourselves with ourselves, and then we falsely label ourselves as being good. But it doesn't mean we're good. It just means we're better at swimming against the current of our own actual nature than most of the rest of the people around us. And as an aside, do you know who God compares us to? It's a little stunning. It's good that you're seated. He compares us to Himself, not to each other. The standard of goodness is the standard of His own perfections and holiness. And by that standard, no one's good, and everyone is in need of the perfect High King of Heaven, who has no cause in Himself to suffer and die. There's no sin in Him. Who is the infinite man. He's human. He can suffer for humans. He's God. He can suffer infinitely for that is what our sin deserves. It's what it requires to come into this planet and to plunge down into the depths of the ordinariness, powerlessness, ugliness, grotesqueness, And everything that is deep and dark within us, that if it was shown up on the screen, you'd crawl right out the door. And we all have it. And to take it away for us. 
And that's exactly why God sent Jesus into the world. He tells us that 750 years before he even comes, and he says, look, guys, it's not going to look like wisdom to you, so let me tell you what to look like, look for. And let me tell you what he will do. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We wrongly assumed that what he endured, he endured for himself, but he didn't. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, thank God, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Why? Because he was bearing our guilt. And we're guilty. Like a lamb, the primary animal of sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament, that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he, the true, spotless, perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of, his, of the world, opened not his mouth, but instead willingly went to the cross. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, unjustly accused, unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly killed. And as for his generation, who considers that he was cut off of the land of the living? That's the language of death. He dies, he leaves behind no children. Stricken for what? Well, in case you missed it, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. If you read the New Testament, it reads just like this, but 750 years later. Buried in a rich man's tomb. It's hard to explain, really. Yet it was the will of God to crush him instead of us. Does that say something about his heart? Does that tell you something about his mind? Do you hear anything of the music of his soul there? God has put him to grief instead of you and me. But the story doesn't end there, and neither does the song. It doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection life. It is an Easter song, and frankly, ultimately, it ends high and lifted up and exalted. For Isaiah goes on, he says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Now, you've got to stop again, but you just told me he died. So how's he going to do that if he isn't raised? Get the idea? He shall prolong his days. What days? Because they just ended in the grave. No, well, they did, but only for three days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What hand? A dead, nail-pierced hand laying in a grave somewhere? That hand? No, a resurrected hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied with lifeless eyes, with a lifeless mind, with a, no, with a resurrected body. The resurrected life. And by his knowledge, the knowledge of him, of why he came and who he came for, Shall the righteous one, this Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous as they recognize their need for him and come to him in faith? And he shall bear the, their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, period, end of song. You know, after the movie the other night, it was one of my daughters was just devastated. Uh, basically, we all were, truthfully. I mean, I'm just going to man up and say I did a couple of these. 
And I gave her a hug and I said, did you watch that? She said, yeah. I said, that's your hero. There he is. He did not turn aside, not from what he deserved, but from what I deserved. So we come to the end of the song then, and it's not going to sell a lot on iTunes. I've been sharing that with you each week. But that's not why it's here. It has no commercial value in that sense. It has spiritual value, eternal value. If you don't resist it, but instead kind of give yourself to it and say, okay, Lord, what do I see of your heart in this? What do I, what do I see of your mind in this? What do I see of your soul in this? What is the tune and the music of your heart, of your life that I find in this? And I think bottom line for all the things that we can say, what we see is the so great love of God for sinners and of His holiness as well. It's both that He reconciles in Christ. He does take our sin seriously. How could He be holy and do anything else? It's illogical. It would compromise who He is. And yet He loves us so much that He sends His servant into the world to take upon Himself all that is ordinary, powerless, weak, defeated, ugly, grotesque, that if you put up on the screen, you'd crawl right out underneath, you know, your chair, as would I. All of it. He knows it all. And He takes that burden off of you. And He puts that burden onto His Son, who then bravely nails it in His own body to a tree and defeats even death for you with His own life. That's why God sent Jesus into the world. Now, who did He send Him for? He sent Him for everyone who has the faith not to miss Him, who has the eyes to see that while He is humiliated, He is not less glorious. He's more. He's more. And the question is, is that you? Because I'll tell you, if it is, well, then it's life-changing. Happy Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the suffering servant of the Lord who is our hero. The one who knew when He came into the world way before, actually, from eternity past, what it would involve. The one who, in obedience to a Father that has set His affections on a people like us, who do not deserve them, but who delight in them nonetheless, came into this world knowing all that it would entail, leaving the glories of heaven and its comforts behind to be ordinary, like us, to be powerless for us, and to take upon all that is ugly within us and to wash it away with His blood. Lord, we glory in that Savior and in that message, the message of the man who came, who lived, who suffered, who died for us, and then who did not remain in the grave, but who rose victoriously. For, Lord, He is high and lifted up and exalted right now. 
And I pray, God, that this day, that's where he, what He will be in our hearts as well. We thank You for Him. In Jesus' name, amen.